I did the UK, right? So I managed there and I learned from there pretty quickly. So I think that helped, that experience helped me. By the time I came here, I was 24. So I was a little older. I'd worked a bit. I was a bit streetwise. I mean, you grew up in Nairobi, you're streetwise anyway, right? Yes. You grow up in Nairobi, you're streetwise anyway. And you see these amateurs walking around with like their watches and things. You're like, "Mm -mm." don't show your watch. If you're wearing a watch, you hide it under your sleeve. Or you don't even take, you know, you're asking for trouble. So that got din- dinned into me at a young age. Um, and it's 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 good. It's healthy, I think, in many ways. It just makes you, like, um, able to manage and, and navigate the world. But I would say the biggest thing you were asking how I was managing, the biggest thing I struggled with was the subway. Because <laughs> I just thought it's going to be like London. You know, I spent time in London. The tube system is... It's very organized. It's intuitive. What the map says, the train does. You know, it's as simple as that. And you can tell which direction you're going in. In New York, it was like you either knew it or you don't. Concrete Pastures. I am Nancy Muemwasisi. Being an immigrant has been one of the most challenging and extraordinary experiences of my life. It inspired me to create a platform to reach out to my fellow immigrants and dreamers. The goal is to provide a space for myself and others to share our stories as we deconstruct the world's view of immigrant status. We discuss issues that are important to us in the diaspora. We celebrate the joys, the laughs, the bravery that being an immigrant brings. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We appreciate your support. To all of our new listeners, welcome to the family. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for downloading our app, for sharing it. And my community, I see you. I appreciate you. And oh my goodness, this week is Thanksgiving week. I want to take this moment to thank you for being on this journey with us, for being part of this community. I will continue to show up. I'm committed to you who's listening because I know that on some days, this podcast is your only company and I will continue to show up for you. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you that do celebrate Thanksgiving, especially here in the U.S. Be generous with your gratitude, for it is for sure contagious. Let's meet our guest today. Preet Panu is a professional editor with TV credits for documentary film and travel TV. Featured on PBS, Travel Channel, and Discovery, she has taught in a higher education, delivering instruction for Avid and Premiere Pro, and is an active adjunct instructor at New York 
Film Academy. With over 21 years of editing expertise, seven years of producing, and six years of teaching, her career placements include the UK, US of A, and East Africa. She is currently residing in my hometown, Brooklyn, New York. Prit is fully conversant with post-production for television, documentary film, and digital video and audio. Some of her projects include Anthony Bourdain, No Reservations, feature-lengthy documentary Into the Lost Desert, and she currently edits science content for World Science Festival with over 1 million subscribers. Her career now combines a background in media and education. Having gained a postgraduate certificate in international education from the University of Sunderland. I met her at my brother's house. I know you guys are used to me talking about Raphael. I wanted to bring her on as our first Kenyan guest. Please welcome Prit to the show. Hi, my dear. Hi, thank you for having me here, neighbor, and it's nice to see you. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm so glad you found me and that I'm able to address, you know, your wonderful audience and also lend, I guess, a Kenyan view and Kenyan perspective to your show. So thank you. This is wonderful. I am honored and I just want to congratulate you on your achievement and it's definitely an honor to have you here to bless the audience uh, with what you, you know, you have gone through, through your journey as well. Of course, absolutely. And it's, it's a pleasure to be here and I think there's not enough um, in the media of African voices, you know, and when we talk about African voices, we're not just talking about the traditional American view of an African voice, you know, yes. like I'm an African voice and I don't look like I would be, but I am, you know, yes. no, for I sure. think the world needs to change their sort of outlook on what they perceive of Africa to be. And honestly, um, the media world doesn't give people enough opportunity to see Africa from a different lens and a different perspective. And I think what you're doing is, is really important in that way. So thank you, thank you so much. You yeah. Thank you. You are from Kenya. And yes, we would like to know a little bit about you while you were in Kenya, how you grew up and how you got to come to the U.S. of A. Of course, it's been a journey. As you said, uh, I grew up in Kenya and I was born there and lived there from until the age of about 18 and then moved on to go to university. But growing up in Kenya was, it was really a, a blessing because it's such a melting pot and everybody will tell you that it's a cultural melting pot. So you've got, you know, deep and wonderful and robust Africa itself, right? And we grew up um, surrounded by Kenyans, you know, that's, that's who my, my parents support base was, you know, like they say, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. That was my parents' village, right? We had Wanjiro and we had Zora and we had all these Kenyans working in our home and supporting my parents. And so I, I remember one of my very first memories, maybe when I was about five years old, outside of um, our home, we lived in a very sort of suburban neighborhood called Lavington, Nairobi. And outside of our home, around just around the fence, there was a little, you know, crop of grass before the road starts. And so we'd all go there. The servants would go there. They'd take their tea and then make, you know, really strong tea with lots of sugar in it. 
and sometimes there would be ginger in it and the name for it is turungi you know we call it chai of course in kenya but this specific tea is called turungi and they'd all mix cups of tea and they'd give me one but it would always be too hot and they were given these metal mugs i don't even remember those metal mugs like to yep. drink it mm-hmm. so the mug is hot too but they were really careful about you know pouring it from mug to mug until it cooled down and then they gave it to me and i remember sitting there and sipping this thing and it was like juice it was so sweet and sugary and flavorful and this is one of my memories of kenya until today here in new york i invoke that morning ritual and i make my tea with ginger and sugar and i bring back that taste you know because it's so important to me and it grounds me and it makes me feel i'm getting so emotional now oh, it makes me feel so- at home and that's how my heart is because my heart is in Kenya in many ways. Yeah. So I grew up um surrounded by, you know, different cultures as well. My my mom is Muslim. My dad um is Sikh. So for them to get married back in the day was taboo, you know. They they basically eloped to get married. So wow. that was like a big deal back then. And so I grew up with Muslim and Sikh culture. But my mom was also raised by nuns. She went to a monastery when she left her home when she was about 11. and she went to school in catholic school and she was there as a boarder so she was raised as nuns so i also grew up with catholicism in my background so like i said a melting pot it very much was that for me you know and so we had the very deep indian culture um the indians who moved to east africa from india they maintained their culture in a big way you know and when we used to meet people from india they, they were like why are you guys so hardcore indian you know how is that possible and we're like i don't know it's just what happened you know people brought themselves to east africa and they continued who they were they didn't lose themselves in that which was wonderful and east africa gave us the freedom to do that the freedom to be who we were right there wasn't this level of oppression of like religious religion and and um i guess just freedom of thought and speech and things like that we didn't have that level of oppression and control on us so we were able to be who we were and then i also grew up um just a little wild you know it's africa which is amazing my my mom's constant battle with me was put your shoes on <laughs> i just didn't want to wear shoes i'd come home from school the first thing i'd do was kick off my shoes i never wanted to have shoes on my feet and there's pictures of us my two brothers and i as kids and we would literally be hanging off the tree in the backyard that's where we'd hang out and spend our time that was our fortnite or youtube you know like the kids do now And then luckily my uncle had a farm at the foot of Mount Kenya. So holidays were spent there. Our summers were spent there and as we grew up that became like almost summer camp for us. My parents would literally drive us up from Nairobi, drop us off and then come and visit us, you know, in a couple of weeks and see how we're doing at the farm. And we'd run wild on that farm with with the animals. My uncle was a big animal lover, so there was always puppies or kittens or something like that. There was always something for us to like, you keep ourselves occupied with, and something super cute for us to hold on to. You know, it was amazing that way. Um, and it was it was great. The backdrop, you know, of that farm was Mount Kenya, like that postcard picture of Mount Kenya, which was amazing. So. I feel really blessed to have had that experience and those are some of my best memories definitely spent um in Nanyuki. Nanyuki was the village that um, my uncle had his farm at. And then as I went through high school, um things got busier in my life, so I had less and less time to go out to the farm and to Nanyuki, you know. 
And eventually my uncle had to sell the farm because they got older, you know, his kids weren't interested in necessarily taking over farming. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same problem all over the world, right? Farming used to be something that used that existed in families and got um, spread out through the lineage through generations, but less and less um, younger generations want to go into that. So they have to find other ways to attract people into the farming industry now around the planet. And then it's becoming industrial, of course. So he sold his farm and then he bought a smaller one at the coast in Kenya, in Malindi. So we used to go and visit him there instead. But we never got that same vibe back, you know, that feeling back that we had had at my uncle's farm. And then having gone through high school and everything, you know, the demands get bigger on you. O-levels, A-levels, you have to study, you have to spend more time there. And then, of course, I got into, you know, just teenage life. Growing up in Nairobi was... It was quite the riot. It was a real party scene. I mean, no one's carding us. You don't have to be 21 to drink. As long as you can go up to a bar and pay for a drink, you get one, you know? So we started like going to the clubs. One of the big ones was the carnivore and literally dancing under the African skies. The DJs would play um, pop music and we'd hang out and we'd drink and dance. And I remember very clearly one of the drinks that came out around when I was about 17 was Sambuca. I don't know if you know this, it's like a Greek sort of, um, tastes like licorice, this Greek ouzo thing. And you just sort of do a shot of it. It's really syrupy and sweet, but they had different colors of Sambuca. So you could buy like a purple one or a red one or the, a white one or the, or the yellow one. <laughs> so we drink this rainbows of Sambuca at night and you could light them. Um, you could light the top of it on fire and then you'd, you'd lick the palm and then you'd put it out and then take the shot, you know? So when people ask me now why I don't drink anymore, it's like, well, I started drinking really young. So I kind of got that out of my system. You know, I've, I've been there and done that, like literally <laughs> it's all good. And then I got into just like the music scene there. I loved music and I, I found that music really sort of filled me and, and fulfilled me in many ways. And that was something that I continued to do as I came to New York. Um, but having grown up in Kenya, the sort of the trajectory was you got to get out. Everybody was like, okay, you got to go away for your education. The universities here are not reliable. They're not that, that good. And during that time, universities would often shut down. Um, there'd be some sort of, you know, strike or a protest or, you know, there'd be lack of funding or something like that. So it was obvious that I wasn't going to be able to further my um, education in Kenya and it was always the idea that you're going to go to the UK to study so I did my applications you know I ended up getting into the University of Sheffield and doing business studies and economics there in Sheffield in the UK um, and I, I went basically to the UK not knowing how to do my own laundry of course I grew up you know pampered in Nairobi of course, of some, course. never having like um, I guess maybe cooked a meal or ironed anything, right? Never having signed a check or opened a bank account with um, a fortune of money that's supposed to get me through my year in university and also my fees because that was a little fortune, you know? And in that was in, um, it came as the banker's check and some of it is cash, you know, from my dad. So I'm there my first day at the University of Sheffield um, at the Students' Union looking around completely clueless and not realizing how clueless I was. But as the weeks went by, I was like, okay, I know absolutely nothing. 
and I didn't know how to turn on the washing machine. I, I couldn't understand where to put the coins in, all of that kind of stuff. But we learned, we figured it out, you know? Yeah. And our parents sort of, they trusted. I mean, I wouldn't trust my kids and throw them out to another country without having really, really grounded them. But that's the generational, you know, gap between us. It's a different mindset, you know. This was the 80s when my parent, when I was young and my, I was growing up and then early 90s when I was sent to college. So parenting was different then, you know. And they were like, we've taught you. We spent a lot of money on you. You've been to school. You have, you're, you're educated and you're smart. You'll figure it out. And we did. You know, I had one friend who came with me from Kenya, Alvin, um, RIP Alvin, never forget him. Aww. And he, he's such a funny guy. He just copied everything I did. So when I started applying for universities, like, where are you applying? Pre, where are you going to apply? Kenyan guy, tall, and he had that typical box haircut, you know? And so he just sort of mimicked everything I did. And we got into the same university together. So I wasn't alone being clueless. I was clueless with Alvin. <laughs> oh. So yeah, I ended up in the UK. And from there, I, I ended up going back to Kenya once I graduated. Um, I always wanted to go home, back home and work there. And I worked in a bank. And I realized that I had no idea what work was and what banking would be like in Africa. I thought I'd be on a computer. Um, number one, because computers were just starting to come out. We had email at that point. I remember getting my very first Hotmail account, and that's how I was keeping in touch, you know, with friends I'd made at university. Um, and so my first day at the bank, I was waiting for them to show me my desk. And my desk was at a table with a whole bunch of other accountants. And we were like sort of sit, sat at the rectangular table, all facing each other, into each other. And I was like, okay. And I was waiting for a computer to show up or something. What I got was one of those old school accounting calculators with the the tape, the ticker tape on it and a ledger, a giant ledger that went boom and was like just slapped in front of me in which I would open and then literally physically consolidate accounts. I was like, whoa, okay, this is not what I thought banking would be. And so I survived somehow that role for about six months, but always with the thought of, I need to, I need to move on. I need to do something else. Uh, maybe I need to get involved in the tourism industry because that was something that was always big. And of course, in, in Kenya, in East Africa, it's huge. And it still is today. But as I did that every morning, I had this ritual of like reading the newspaper. And as we read the paper, um, the fruit lady would come by and she'd have these little Tupperware containers that she's made fruit salad in and it was the best fruit salad ever i don't know the fruit in africa there's nothing like it, it yeah. nowhere in the world does it come close to it you know i've even had fruit in maybe jamaica some of it some of the local stuff there but i've even had fruit in mexico and honestly it, it just doesn't come close and so this amazing mouth-watering you know fruit salad in the morning would be my breakfast and i remember eating that and and reading the paper and one day I came across um, an ad which was asking people to audition for a new radio station that was starting. So I thought, okay, I'll go along for the audition. And so I did. I went along um, the following Sunday, did the audition, and I got the job. I ended up working on radio in, nice. in Nairobi for a year. And I opened up and launched the radio station because my show was the very first one to go on air. 
Um, I remember my first show, I was so nervous and I wasn't, I was co-hosting because they were easing me into it and training me still. And I was with Paul Olding, who'd come from the UK and he'd run a, um, a radio station in the UK for a little while. So Paul was my, the main host and I was sort of co-hosting with Paul. And for the first half an hour, the only word this poor guy could get out of me was, yep, yep. Because <laughs> I was so nervous. He's like, so pre, um, this is your first day on radio. Yep. <laughs> and he's like, oh my gosh, you have to say more than that. So as he played the song, he's like, Preet, you're sounding more and more like a bird than a human being. <laughs> you have to say some words. I was like, okay. And the way we cracked through that was at one point I stood up and I started walking about and pacing, you know, as the music was playing in between songs. And when he talked to me, I walked up to the mic and I was still standing. And that's when I could speak. Suddenly I was able to talk and I was able to get my nerves out because I used my body and my energy to just sort of, you know, get those nerves out. Yeah. So I realized that's what I need to do. And I ended up delivering most of my radio shows standing because that's what helped me um, just manage my, you know, voice, my words and everything. And it made, it made me sound more um, animated, I guess when I was reading the news or when I was delivering something out. for the news, I would actually sit because it would calm down my voice and make it more, you know, level. And then for um, just like regular presenting or introducing songs or talking to people on the phone and stuff who would call in, I would stand up for that. So it was a wonderful experience. And I realized then that media was my thing. Yes, I have a background in business, but I didn't know if I was going to be successful pursuing that path. And especially that, it's something that seemed to have bored me to death. But of course, that banking experience, you know, kind of put me off. And I knew I had to do something else with my life. So I pursued media and that's what got me here to New York. I came here to study my master's in media and at the new schools. So that's what brought me to this big, wonderful, mad city. And when I first came here, I thought, okay, I'm just going to get my credentials. And the idea was always to go back to Kenya and live there. But I came here and I got stuck. And here I am, like almost 22 years later, still in New York, still in Brooklyn. <laughs> wow. You never know where life's going to take you. Not no. to say that I've left Kenya behind. Like, you can't never leave Africa behind when you're an African. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I um, always go back at the opportunity I get. I applaud you for realizing what your passion is early on in your career. Because a lot of us because of our parents and how the, I guess, our culture is, banking was like a prestigious job for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have your degrees and when you have a banking job back home, it's just like you've, you have arrived. So many people want to be in your shoes. And for you just to, you know, I, I this is not for me. I'm going to go into media and this is what I'm connected to. I applaud you for that. It's really great. Um, Thank you. It was, yeah, it was tough to get my parents on board too, because of course, like you said, for them, it was become a banker, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, those, that, those were the paths. All of us, all of us. Yeah. The, the careers you should have. Nothing media. You can't feed people with media. How you know it's no, going to work? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you get to New York 
how was the adjustment period? I know you had you were in New York, uh, in the UK, and then now the US. I'm sure there should be some differences on how things are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd always had this romantic vision of coming to the US growing up. You know, like. Every, speaking of media, everything we watched, we consumed, we listened to when we were teenagers was from here. MTV came out and our worlds were blown wide open. You remember when MTV came out? <laughs> oh my gosh, that was amazing. And then I watched all these movies like with Prince and, you know, Lost Boys and Stand By Me. And then all these like, I guess the Stephen King horrors and stuff that came out as well. But it just made New York and America seem so wonderful and such such a place of like freedom and possibility so when i came here i was filled with that you know with that sentiment of like freedom and possibility and the world is your oyster you know you can be and do anything you want to and my first few weeks i remember walking around new york and thinking i feel like i'm in a movie like it felt so familiar but a world that I'd never been in, but I knew, you know, in that sense. And there were certain places that you'd recognize literally from scenes in films, you know, like Taxi Driver and stuff like yes. that. So it was it was really cool, I have to say, being in New York. And it was really surreal. Every now and then I'd pinch myself and be like, it's not a dream. And so I, I was living with a friend of a friend's um, in her apartment. And I knew another very close friend of mine from Kenya had just moved to the U.S., but she was in the in California. She was in Torrance in California. Mm. And it's sort of like outside of LA. It's very um, car oriented. She didn't have a car and she felt so stuck and stranded. And I'm like, just come to New York. I have no car. You don't need a car here. You know, I still don't have a car. All this time, I've never had a car in New York and it's never slowed me down or held me back. And I told her that and like, just come. And so on a whim, she did. And her name is Sagal. So we ended up living together here. And again, I had a partner in crime, just like I had Alvin in Sheffield. I had Sagal in New York. Yeah. And she, she's now actually come back full circle. She went to Kenya and she's come back now to New York. So I'll hopefully I'll be able to connect you with her because she's she's got an interesting story. Oh, as well. yes, please. Thank you. She'd be wonderful to speak to. Oh, but for sure. I remember being having so little here even less than I had in Kenya. And my parents would have felt a little heartbroken if they'd seen my life here in the beginning in New York. They would have felt sad for me, you know? But I felt like I had so much. So we shared a, a, a room and we shared a futon bed. And we rented a room from this couple um, in Murray Hill. And when you opened the door, the door would hit the bed. So you couldn't even get the door of the, the room wide open. And we shared a tiny strip of a cupboard and the rest of our clothing and stuff, you know, we'd rotate. So we have seasons here, as you know. Yes. So we'd have, we'd have our clothes for the, just that season in the closet and the rest would be in storage somewhere. And we spent, we lived in that same bed together for like a year, never once had an argument, never once had an issue or a clash, just somehow in harmony with each other and, and were more than happy, you know? Wow. And didn't feel like we needed any more than that. And experienced just, just the wonder of this city. Every day was an adventure because um, Manhattan, we were in Manhattan, of course, as you know, every neighborhood has something new and different to explore and offer you. And then there are all these little subcultures you can get into in New York. You know, for example, we met this wonderful guy 
who Suggle ended up dating. His name is Herbie. And Herbie was a fencer. He was in, into fencing. Yeah. And he was、um, going to represent the US in the Olympics at one point, but he had an injury, so couldn't make it. But we got into the, you know, this fencing thing with him. And then he introduced us to the house music scene and specifically Club Shelter and Body and Soul. And sort of it's house music, but it's house music from a very black perspective. You know, it's soulful. Nice. And it's also got this sort of gospel house music.、Oh, and when we started、nice. going, we'd show up at the club at 10 and, you know, would hang out. And Herbie would be like, no, no, this is amateurish. We're like, why? What do you mean? He's like, no, no. You guys have to come to the club at four in the morning. I was like, what? What are you talking about? How are we going to have a drink at four? You're like, it's not about the alcohol and the drinking and stuff. You come here to dance and to get into the spirit of house. Being an immigrant can be hard. Having been away from my home country for over 20 years has allowed me to experience these hardships firsthand. Throughout my journey, I have always had a lot of challenges that were hard to bear. Juggling the adjustment to a new country, obtaining my immigration papers, getting married, having children, establishing my career, and leaving time for myself. Even though I have always had faith, I also relied on therapy, which gave me the tools to cope with the issues life brought me. My fellow dreamers, let's remove the stigma around therapy and normalize seeking help with today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Go to betterhelp.com slash forward concrete pastures for 10% off your first month of therapy with BetterHelp and get matched with a therapist who will listen and help you in as little as 48 hours. So, this guy schooled us on how to experience house music, and Herbie would literally wake us up at 3 a.m. We get changed and we would go to the club at 4 a.m. for when the real DJs would come on. Like Timmy Regisford, he's still playing, by the way, till today.、Wow. Timmy Regisford is playing in New York、uh, and you can still see him. A lot of those old house、um, DJs, you know, we've lost some of them during the pandemic and before because they're, they're older now.、Mm-hmm. But we would literally go to the club at 4 a.m. and some of that music sounded like. You know, gospel. It's, it sounded like, and it would be referring to, you know, spirituality and the creator. And it was all in the spirit of love and togetherness. And you would see every kind of human being in that club. You know, the club wasn't completely packed. It's 4 a.m., it's emptied out a bit now. You're not squashed like sardines. Like a lot of places can be really tight and squashed in New York. And、yes. you want to bust a move, but you just can't quite get into it because people's shoulders are right next to you. <laughs> But here we had like space to roam around and move, and there's every walk of life around you and every spectrum of the age group. You know, you'd have young people and you'd have people all the way with like gray hair. So it was it was wonderful being in New York. And then, of course, I love my course.、Um, I thrived. I definitely found the thing for me. And it was so good to the point where I was getting scholarships, academic scholarships, because I was just, you know, nailing my, my classes and everything. And I think that helped my parents be like, okay, she's doing the right thing now. <laughs> she seems how, how are you managing that four o'clock clubbing and then schooling at、um, the new school? school? By the way, I actually worked with the new school with the international、yeah. um, students. So this immigrant thing,、uh, I realized the other day, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't really start right now. 
I've been doing this work for a while. Because I yes, didn't you then the new school. I used to work very closely with uh, with them, the international side. Because the same way you were yeah. explaining that you didn't know how to write a check, you didn't. Know. So when the students come here, they don't know all of that. The, the, the right. banking of America, it's different from where we come from. So I was the person that was teaching them those ropes, how to open up an account, and all that good stuff. So really, really good. How are you managing? <laughs> well, you, I mean, I did the UK, right? So I managed there and I learned from there pretty quickly. So I think that helped, that experience helped me. By the time I came here, I was 24. So I was a little older. I'd worked a bit. I was a bit streetwise. I mean, you grew up in Nairobi, you're streetwise anyway, right? Yes. You grow up in Nairobi, you're streetwise anyway. And you see these amateurs walking around with like their watches and things. You're like, Mm-mm. you don't show your watch. If you're wearing a watch, you hide it under your sleeve. Or you don't even take it with you. You know, you're asking for trouble. So that got din- dinned into me at a young age. And it's 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 good. It's healthy, I think, in many ways. It just makes you, like, able to manage and, and navigate the world. But I would say the biggest thing you were asking how I was managing, the biggest thing I struggled with was the subway. Because <laughs> I just thought it's going to be like London. You know, I spent time in London. The tube system is, it's very organized. It's intuitive. What the map says, the train does. You know, it's as simple as that. And you can tell which direction you're going in. In New York, it was like you either knew it or you don't. <laughs> and you can either hear this guy on this crackly speaker and understand what he's saying or it's just gibberish. Like in the beginning, I couldn't even understand what they were saying when they were announcing stuff. Because first of all, the audio and the trains were really bad. I think these trains were built in the 70s and the speakers were from then. Now they've upgraded things. Yes, different. thank God. Oh my gosh. And then the accents. And sometimes it's a Jamaican accent. Sometimes it's an Indian accent. Like it's never going to be the accent that you're ready for that day. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't predict who's going to get on that speaker and talk to you. And then the worst thing or the worst and best thing about New Yorkers is their confidence. So when you ask for directions... People will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, they go here and you go there and you'll, you know, turn left and you go right and you'll find it. I'm like, okay, great. But that person had no clue where you were going. They just gave you the direction with confidence and they direct you somewhere completely wrong, even though you followed it exactly, you know? I'm laughing because I went through the same exact thing. I would ask for direction. The confidence that the people just give you direction. Yes. You follow it exactly and you lost completely. And then I had to go back to where I started from. Exactly. Else. Oh. That's how it goes. <laughs> wow. That's a New Yorker for you. They will tell you, like, they will talk to you as if they know it, like they've been knowing it for millennia. <laughs> this information, ah, this is old. I know it forever. And then when you follow that information, you're like, yo, that guy didn't know anything. <laughs> Oh so that, that's what I struggled with the most. But once I once I understood the system, I knew my you know routines, my routes, everything. I was fine. I was just you just do it sort of you know blindfolded. And even the weekend, I'd accidentally if I'm going somewhere else, I'd accidentally find myself going to and heading to university just on autopilot. I'm like, ah, I didn't want to go here. You know, I wasn't planning to show up at Union Square again. Why did I end up here? It's because you're on autopilot and you're just yeah. going to the role of that system. But um, I love the energy of New York. And you were asking me, how are you going to the club at four in the morning? I was working at 2 a.m. until 2 a.m. at the university. 
I was working at the computer lab. And then after that, we'd hang out and then go to the club sort of thing, you know. And I wouldn't sleep much. My first year, I just didn't sleep much. I didn't need to, you know. I was just infused by the energy and the vibe of the city. And I knew, yes, you're going to burn out. You can't sustain that forever. Yeah. And what made me realize that I needed balance with my life was when we came and we visited a friend um, who's actually a writer and used to write for um, uh, different hip-hop magazines. Oh, I forget. Maybe The Source. Was it The Source? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we came and visited him in Brooklyn and he'd thrown a party and Herbie, the fencer, was also a DJ. So he was DJing at the party and we got a taste of Brooklyn. We're like, hey, Brooklyn feels more like home, you know, there's more people. You know what we mean? Like more flavor, more people like us. More diverse, yeah. Exactly. And then there's house party scene, you know, which we love. And then there's like just a little more space. And it's a little more quiet in the mornings. You don't wake up to like sirens and F you. And, you know, that's Manhattan. <laughs> like literally that scene from Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. When you wake up <laughs> that's waking up in Manhattan. <laughs> but waking up in Brooklyn was a little more zen and peaceful, you know. Yeah, there's a garbage truck or whatever, but it's not going to be this this constant barrage of noise and craziness. And um, we, so we decided we were going to move to Brooklyn. And once we did, we, we found our, our balance, our chill zone. So there were some days, you know, we just chill out and sleep and nap and hang out. And then there's some days when we're pushing through it. And that's where we came to like that level of balance. I think if I'd continued to live in Manhattan the whole time, I would have had a little bit of burnout. And I had, I did go back to live in Manhattan for a few years after that, but having understood, you know, needing that balance in that work-life balance. That's what helped me sort of manage things. And yeah, from there, I just started, you know, going with the flow in New York and going with the flow of what came at me um, socially and then career-wise. Mm. I ended up DJing because I, I, I had always been into music and I learned from my cousin who was a DJ in the UK um, what to do and how to do it. And so I spent a good chunk of my student loan, my first student loan <laughs> on my turntables. <laughs> uh, and so I started doing those house parties in Brooklyn, which was awesome. And then Herbie would come along and, you know, he'd, he'd also bring these giant speakers when Herbie would show up. And that's when you knew, okay, the party was on. And when we knew we'd had a really good party was when the, the cops would come and try and shut us down <laughs> because we were making too much noise. So... It was, it's been amazing. And that's something I hope I eventually go back into because my friend Sagal, she always teased me. She's when I had my children, she's like, Preet's now switched her turntables for diaper changing tables. And I was like, oh, don't say it like that. So one day I want to get back into that. Once my kids are ready and it feels like uh, saying mom is a DJ is, it's respectable. It's not like weird for them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> How old are they now? Um, fourteen and ten, yeah. Nice. So you still got a little, uh, a little long way to go. Yes. Uh, yes. To party, but once you start turning, I'll be showing up and turning up as well. Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that. Yes, <laughs> of course. Um, that's what I. That's another thing I love about New York, and you have to agree. Don't you feel like there's no limits on your capabilities in terms of your age? Oh no no no! There's no limit at all whatsoever. You could you could start from fifty, sixty, seventy, whatever you want. Exactly. There's no it's it's never too late for us. Like nothing 
is okay you you are grown now no we don't have that exactly it's it's amazing that's that's what i like about new york you know i used to hang out with my college professors and you know they were older in their 60s gray-haired and they just seemed like they were the same they felt like they were the same age as us you know yeah and i i love that new york sort of keeps you going keeps you young and lets you engage in things that you have a passion for and you don't have to feel like i'm too old to do this you know i'm too old to go to the club i just i just recently went by the way i went to see black coffee on sunday at brooklyn mirage and it was amazing he was he was amazing and i don't think i would have necessarily done things like that if i was still in kenya you know i would have thought like, i don't know why it's, it's like that back home Like after you have yeah. kids that's it you're done you're done right. playing you you you're just done playing you can't be a child anymore you can't have the child like mindset everything is grown 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 uh, mm. I, I, that's why i love new york and uh, i want to go i'll go back to you living in the city and manhattan i worked in manhattan for 13 years i loved it because again i can relate to you every from downtown to the west side to everywhere around Manhattan there's like something different to experience right and i worked like almost all over manhattan and i was experiencing it enjoying it every single day new building or people from everywhere and god forbid you even go to harlem forget it harlem feels like home for me Now, being that it's all Africans most uh, that, that are populated in Harlem and when you get there that's why I started uh, with banking it, I felt at home the, those were my customers and I would just uh, uh, they would wait for me they would come visit hey even though we're not from the same country but it just felt home we could relate we are all immigrants but we are from the same continent and we just felt great Oh, absolutely like when you in the cab and the cab driver oh yes <laughs> Senegal I mean anywhere choose pick anywhere on the map on yeah. the continent of Africa and you say you're from Kenya there's this immediate connection you know yeah. they're like you get it or they'll say something like you're my sister you know yes, like that. Sure. there's this immediate sort of bond that happens between you and this recognition of like okay I know where you're from and I know how you feel being here you know It's a wonderful thing. Oh, I love it. I, I New York is is amazing and the fact that we can find even the celebrities because when I worked in the city sometimes on the corner just passing by they are filming. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it's beautiful. Actually, the corners the corners of Manhattan are like from a movie scene. And yes. they they are they're set up you see you see like everybody with their craft services and their big lights and everything you're like okay there's a film going on here. Yeah, yeah. so I show whatever it is. Which, I, is, which I, is one of your top celebrity sightings. 11th Ave because I worked on um 11th yeah. Avenue. So I would have like Alec Baldwin pass by. So many people would pass by and then Law and Order used to film there. Okay. There was another show, jeez, I'm forgetting. But there was so many like movies and shows showing up on that corner for some reason. Right. 11th University all the time because also the uh, the housing, the type of housing that's there, everybody just like used to come there. Uh that's so cool. That's awesome. 
Yeah. So I want to get into your career. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to learn. There's so much to there's so much insight that you can give uh to so many people around the world that could learn from your experience. You've definitely put in some work from Kenya to here. And what was it like for you working on Anthony Bourdain? I'm a huge fan. I I was devastated when I heard the news. I and I even remember where I was. We were driving across America for vacation, and then the news broke. I was very depressed uh, with that. I was very disappointed. But this life, um, how was, was that? Big loss for the world, definitely. I mean, yeah. I, like you remember, I remember that day. I was in Nairobi, actually. Mm. I moved to Kenya for a year with my sons. Um, so I'd taken my sons to Kenya for a year. I wanted to put them in school there and have them experience, you know, life in Africa and where I was from and also have a different perspective on the world. I didn't want yeah. them to just grow up completely 100% American and not knowing that this gets done differently and um, elsewhere, you know, and you have people elsewhere and you have family and you have a home in Africa. So I wanted them to feel that connection. But anyway... I was just driving around Nairobi, heading back to my parents' place, and I got a text from a friend who knew I was working on the show, and he's like, did you see what happened? Did you hear what happened? No. And then I started researching further, and I saw that we'd lost Anthony Bourdain. So working with him was, it was a, a privilege, you know? I have to say, very grateful to have had that experience. This show, um, Anthony Bourdain, No Reservations, was done in such a beautiful way. If you watch this uh, a series, you'll see that every single episode is unique. It's not cookie cutter. It's no. not edited in a way that you'll think, okay, this is what's going to happen. Like, for example, I don't know, The Floor is Lava or Nailed It, one of those shows. They're cookie cutter. Each episode is edited in a very specific way. The way Anthony Bourdain was done, um, one editor was in charge of each show, a different editor. And so they would bring their own sort of unique um, perspective to it. Like if it was a show in Japan, they would start off the beginning with like some anime sort of comic book, you know, um, storyboard kind of thing, which would be, you know, rooted in Jap Japan and they'd play Japanese music and they'd really bring you into that country, you know, using its culture and using the art from that country specifically. Oh, if it was France, you'd hear more sort of French music and you'd see like calm, beautiful, sexy, you know, French countryside and champagne yeah. and things like that. And um, Bourdain was just, he was an excellent writer. He just had this ability to like immediately put a script to paper without even having to like you know get a forewarning or time or whatever the way the edit edits were approached is we would rough cut a, um, a particular episode so say I was working on the Panama episode we'd rough cut it and record our own voice record what we call a scratch track and we'd write our own version of narration just to make it flow and then we'd send that version to Tony to Anthony Bourdain and Tony would take a look at it and he'd write his own narration he'd record his voice and he'd send it back to us and 
it would just be next level. You know, he would add his personality into it. He was very self-deprecating. Yeah. If you remember him, he would just be very honest about himself. And then he would add his own perspective on that country. And he would also root it in some sort of historical background on that country or what's happening in that country at the time politically or something like that. So it wouldn't just be about food and travel. You know, it would be like all encompassing food, travel, culture, politics in the country, um, what it's like to live there and that kind of thing. It was amazing. It was really an amazing experience. And I did get to meet him a couple of times. Oh, and nice. He, literally the personality you see on camera he wow. didn't put on an air and become something when the camera was turned on that is tony 100% that was him you know he'd just be like kind of brash and a bit blatantly honest and he'd be like well, what have you done to your hair why did you do that well i liked it the other way you know like just really new york in that sense too you know yeah. harsh but honest and that's one thing, again, I love about New York is that you always know where you stand with people. No one's pretending. No one's faking it. Yep. No, one, no one's trying to be pretentious about who they are. They're just like blatant, you know. And that was Tony. Like he had the spirit of New York in him in many ways, I would say. But, you know, he had a dark past. Like if you read some of his books, um, i trying to remember. Kitchen Confidential is one of them. And he talks about the celebrity chef world and just the chef world. And it's really a grind. You know, we talked about how I came to New York and hardly slept. He never slept. The hours he worked, the, demanded, the demands on his body and stuff. And so they got into things that try and keep them up and to try and keep them energetic and moving. And he got into the drug scene, specifically yeah. heroin. And that's what um, rewired his brain in many ways when you become an addict especially for something like heroin, you sort of block your body's ability to like create certain um, feelings, especially endorphins um, to just help release happiness and joy in your body. Your body can no longer do that because the drug started doing that for you. And so your body gave up doing it and stopped doing it altogether. So when you get off it and you get clean, you lose that ability to just feel joy and happiness in your life. And I think that's something that put him in that pit of darkness that he was in. I mean, I don't know for sure. Yes. It happened to him, but in my mind, he rewired his, his brain's chemistry. And I think that's what sort of brought him down in the end. You know, wow. you look at his life and anybody would, and they'd be like, if I had that life, I would be so grateful. And I would never, ever, you know, do anything to like, disrespect that experience you know yeah. some people look at him taking his own life as like an f you to the world and an f you to like all this stuff all this amazing um opportunities that he had but i don't think he saw it that way no i, I think for him it was just like i can't go on you know yeah I just can't go on and you know some stars shine too brightly and they dim quickly that's kind of what happens in the, in the world right yeah no I, I i just love how great he was a storyteller i, I he always i was always i still watch uh like i was i recently went to mexico and i was on the plane literally watching uh, uh watching him and um it's just he's very captivating in the way he told the story of any country he went to and uh, last night I was watching um, because of the interview. I was watching. I was like, "Oh, let me see uh, which season she did." 
the meaning you did, which is season five. And I was watching when he was in Australia, Vietnam, uh, Mexico. And um, it, uh, 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 my heart, again, just when I'm like, oh, gone too soon. But yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We, did, we lost um we lost someone very special and he was a wordsmith as well. He, mm. His writing was amazing. He's put books out there. So if you want to pursue, you know, and delve into his background a little more, he does write about his, his background in the culinary world in New York and sort of being at the top of the, that scene, what that was like, you know, it's, it's yeah. quite amazing. And he just had the gift of putting words together and building a world with his words. It was, it's amazing, really amazing. So working on that show, I learned a lot. You know, I used to work, the way I got in was um, I agreed to work the night shift called the swing shift. And I would go in at 5 p.m. and then keep working until about um, 3 or 4 a.m. It was very intense. So I started as a junior editor and then sort of, you know, ro rose up through that. It was it was tough. And I also had um, a toddler at that point. My, my son was about 18 months old. So that was that was tough. It was tough times, um, but it was worth it because honestly, it does feel like one of the highlights of my career. I hope there'll be more. <laughs> there's <laughs> you know, definitely going to be more. Like yeah. No, there's definitely going to be more. I mean, you have uh, the desert, the lost desert. Yes. Um, that's also huge. That was that was a cool. That was a very cool documentary to work on. Yeah, and the the character he's. Uh, Max Calderon is a wonderful guy. You used it was out on Tubi, um, so you used to be able to watch it for free. But the, our subscription there or has finished, so I yeah. think they're going to release it in another channel soon. So I hope so. I'll watch the space. I'll let you know. Um, but yeah, Max is it, this Italian character, but he's an Italian character who has such deep love for the Arabic world, and yeah. he speaks fluent Arabic. And then he also prays from the Quran. So there's this one scene where he, he does get lost at night in a sandstorm in the desert and he has a camera with him. So he's shooting at himself and he just starts, um, you know, the Islamic prayer to help him get through this sandstorm. But he's also at the same time speaking in English and he's like talking to the desert. The desert that he's in is called the Rubble Kali. And he's talking to the desert and he's saying, please allow me to, you know, pass through you peacefully. I just, mm -hmm. ca I just came here to see your, to experience your spirit and your beauty, you know. So he speaks to the desert as if it's a person that way. It's amazing. It's really wonderful. So um, Max is a, an extreme explorer and he spent a lot of his life running and exploring deserts, doing marathons in deserts. So his dream was to cross the empty quarter of the Arabian desert. And that's what this documentary does. It, it um, follows him on his journey, his extreme journey through the desert. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't on the production crew for that one. <laughs> we lost a lot of cameras and stuff just because of the dust. And yeah, I can imagine. were freezing. It was extreme temperatures, you know, in the desert. Um, and then there was a lot of men, so I think it would have been quite sweaty and stinky. I'm glad I was on the other, the receiving end of the footage, just waiting in an office in New York to get the footage. <laughs> what is your process when you are getting you 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 get a footage for the for you to edit? What is your process like? Where do you go to? There's so many creators all over the world in the diaspora that are working to do this work that you do. What is your process? Maybe somebody can learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. So I would get the raw footage. For example, Anthony Bourdain. Let's talk about that one because it's 
TV show based.、Um, yeah. And I would get 80 hours of footage. This was on tape back then. Now you no longer get tape. You'd probably get a disc or something to put in, a sand disc or something like that, an SD card or something. But I would get it on tape. And the first process, of course, is to just like digitize everything, put everything in a usable format in your computer, and then start labeling everything. Being organized is something that helps me get to where I need to be.、Mm. And watching everything. I feel like these editing programs now are so easy. You can in- immediately start cutting and putting stuff together. And it's so simple to drop, you know, copy and paste and copy and paste and throw things into a timeline and start, you know, creating something. But I always urge my students, even when I teach editing, don't start cutting anything until you've watched everything. Watch every single thing you have. It's such a simple, like, logical thing to do, but people skip that step, you know? Watch it all as you go. Make, you know, mental notes or write it down if it's a lot of footage, which clip is where, you know? And then start putting, organizing sub, sub bins. So you have what we call bins in the editing world, which literally referred to, now those bins are digital, but it referred to when we、uh, used to get film on a reel. Back in the day, and those reels would come in a bin to an editor, and the bin would be delivered. And then we'd take those reels and cut them with razor blades and you know, stick them with glue. That's how films were originally made. So, that concept of bins still, still exists, you know, in the editing world. And once you do that, once you start organizing things, you will have a bin of you know, your A roll, the main footage you're going to use, which is your talent talking to the camera, Anthony Bourdain speaking, you know. Um, Anthony Bourdain talking to people and interviewing people. Then you would have what's called your B roll, which is your cutaway shots. And within that, you have B roll of you know, the, the country that you're visiting this, or the city that you're in. You'd have B roll of the, you know, the traveling that's happening, because sometimes you see him en route and traveling to different places. And you would have B roll of food prep, like food being prepared and cooked.、Yeah. Um, and a lot of the times, the good shots of the food would be called food porn. We'd call that food porn, and we'd have a bin of food porn. So it was a, there was a beautiful, like a gorgeous shot of food that would go in the food porn bin, <laughs> basically. And that's how you'd cut it. And then I, I approached things, and I was very fortunate to have a background in radio. I approached things as, you know, a radio from, from a radio perspective. So I do what's called a radio cut, and that term exists in the industry. I cut the story first. And it's something that has a very rich narrative, and you can close your eyes and listen to it, and you're engaged. And that's when I know I've got a good piece together. After I do the radio cut, that's when I go and start thinking of the visuals, and that's when I go into my B roll and all my cutaway shots, and I start putting those in to make it visually rich now. But you start with the base, and it's like, it's like a layers in an onion, you know? You just keep layering it up and peeling it off until you get to that perfect core in the middle. So. That's, that's pretty much my process. And then after I've done a cut, I always get somebody else to watch it because as an editor, you're so close to it. You can't necessarily see everything, you know? Even if it's, I'm working from home remotely now, even if it's just to get my son to come and watch something, I'm like, just watch this and tell me what you think. Let me know if you see anything out of place. He's like, oh, mom, do I have to? And then, but once he starts watching it, it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. What was that? That looked weird there. I'm like, yeah, you're right. That didn't, that effect didn't work out properly or something like that. Like, he will notice something that I can no longer see because I've been watching it so much and my mind's, my mind's already predicting what I'm going to see, you know? 
Like if you watch a movie twice in a row, you go to the cinema, the second time you watch the movie, there are things that your mind already fills in and you know it's going to come, you anticipate it, you know, your brain fills it in for you. So that's one thing I would really recommend to people is have somebody review it with you. Um, that always helps. And then, you know, get their feedback and then you will also see it from their perspective. Believe it or not, you will see it in a different light. You will see it as if what's an audience looking at here, you know, and does it make sense? Can this, can anybody sit here and watch it and understand what's happening? Yeah, that would be. I love your passion. I, I love your passion. It's come, it's coming through and your experience as well is coming through. And a lot of people are going to appreciate just this knowledge that you're providing us. This is really, really great. Uh, I'm sitting here. I'm already thinking also what I'm, I'm going to do for the podcast because it's the same thing. I'm just like, oh my goodness. You go back and forth to Kenya, right? I do. Well, I travel to Kenya. Um, at the moment, I'm working a couple of places. You know, they're all sort of freelance roles. So like I said, World Science Studios, one place that I'm working with. Yeah. They have had enough work for me lately. So I've taken on other projects. Um, I'm working with this guy who is another sort of, not really an Anthony Bourdain character. It's funny. He's kind of a mix between Bourdain and Max Calderon from Into the Lost Desert. Oh, wow. He runs... Um, different you know in different countries he runs these very particular journeys that have some sort of significance whether it's historical significance or cultural significance so for example the um episode or the season i'm editing right now is on cuba and he he runs from santa clara to havana which mm -hmm. is the trip that fidel castro and che guevara took um, after they ousted batista in santa clara and then they went from santa clara to havana to take over the country and so he's going to run and he runs and walks that journey and i'm you know editing a couple of um episodes for ryan at the moment and his website is runwithryan.org so i'm doing that but i also like to keep a foothold in the education world and you know impart my knowledge as i'm an educator as you can tell i like to you know yeah share what i know and and why not if, if i can get if if i can get you a little further in life why not and especially oh. if you're an african so now i'm working um with a non-profit group in kenya um they're called leo local and they're based in nanyuki which is where my uncle's farm was so it's i feel like i've come around full circle Definitely. And so I'm, helping, I'm helping people there learn media literacy and I think now it's something that our world needs. And it's really sad that we're not teaching this in schools at the moment. You know, everybody needs to learn media literacy. It should be a mandated course starting from middle school to high school. You know, how to navigate the digital world, how to manage, you know, your life with having a device that is constantly demanding your attention. Um, how to sort of just dis um, assemb assimilate information. We're bombarded with information 24-7. Kids more so because of all the apps and things and, you know, the different um, sites that they're on. And so how do you parse down that information? And the course I'm teaching is spotting fake, fake news, how to know the difference between fake and real news and where you should get your news from. Honestly, I'm teaching people not to get their news from social media because that's a habit now. That's a habit that people have formed. They think, oh, I'll go to Facebook and somebody says something about the news and that's news. It's not, it's not news if you don't know who sent it. And if, the, if that voice that sent it isn't a journalist, it is definitely not news. 
So it's something simple like I asked the、uh, participants, "Do you have phones?" Everyone's like, "Yes, pretty much everyone. Even in Kenya, they all have phones." Where do you get your news from? And they would say, "Oh, Facebook, Twitter." You know, I'm like, "But if you have a phone, why don't you have the BBC app?" Why don't you have the CNN app on your phone? Oh, because I have to pay for it.、I'm、like, no, no, no. Those apps are free. If you can get Facebook on your phone, you can get CNN or BBC on your phone. From now onwards, when you're looking at news, look there. That's one way not to become a victim or a target of fake news and not to spread fake information, right? Yes. Go to the source. And then I also tell them, for balance' sake, I usually put Al Jazeera on my phone because if there's、um, news that comes out of the Arab world, I like to get a balanced perspective. I don't want Americans telling me about what's happening in the Arab world. They're saying it from their perspective. I go to Al Jazeera to see that balance. Yeah. But Al Jazeera also also offers this perspective that you wouldn't necessarily see elsewhere. You know, because news media at the end of the day is biased. So if you look at two polar sources, somewhere in the middle lies the real thing, right?、Um, so that's what I love doing. I'm I'm really enjoying that course. I'm not getting paid a penny for it. I'm a volunteer, and honestly, it's what's giving me the most fulfillment right now. So I feel like where I'm headed is, you know, doing more of that. I would love to get more and more involved in media and information literacy. And、um, it's a movement that's sorely needed everywhere. But I think if I can make an impact in Africa, that would be wonderful. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I was going to say it's very fulfilling when you are just doing it just to do it, and because it gives back to you the amount of gratitude that your the, the community that you are helping is giving you. That's fulfillment right there. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's、yeah. so true. That's so true. Yeah, no,、uh, really, really nice. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I keep. <laughs> my that、throat. time of year, my love, we all have like sore throats, <laughs> and it's getting cold. And honestly, seeing the Kenyans sitting there in the sunshine, I'm like envious. <laughs> on the Zoom, <laughs> on、oh、the Zoom、God. the other day, I was like, oh my gosh, you guys have wonderful weather. <laughs> <laughs> I I recently asked、uh, this question to Dr. Bukhari. He's、uh, Bukinabe, and he's into cinema and film as well. And、uh, he wrote the book on、uh, Africans in Harlem, the untold story of New York. And I asked him this question: Where where does he see cinema in Africa or media itself in Africa? Because this is your world. Where do you see that, like in the future? I think right now it's it's coming into a zone where there's more outlets for African、um, media to get out. You know, it's going to be it's easier. You can just release a movie on YouTube. Yeah, you may not make all the money you want to make, but you can get an audience and you can get it out there. Maybe you have an Africa theatrical release where it's released in like you know the movie theaters and stuff there, but you have a YouTube release and you can even do it. You know, it's paid. There's paid media on YouTube now. People have to pay like three ninety nine or whatever it is to rent a film and stuff like that. So there's a lot more opportunity. There's definitely a lot more opportunity there. I think that we have to have more、um, voices from the continent. Definitely, we don't have enough. We're starting to see now Netflix shows come up, a Netflix、yeah. series. Some of them are based in Nairobi and they're shot and edited in Nairobi, which I love. Nigeria has always been really big 
on churning out, you know, films. It's it's at the level of Bollywood, you know. They churn yeah. out more films in Nigeria and Bollywood, Nollywood and Bollywood than they do in Hollywood. So the talent is not missing. There's no lack of expertise and talent and knowledge there. I think it's what's been holding them back is other voices that are bigger. It's being drowned out by Western media and Western content. But I think now people are waking up and paying attention. I mean, look at Black Coffee. He's the biggest, he's the DJ god now, you know? And he's from South Africa. He's homegrown. Yeah. He's not from Berlin and he's not from America or somewhere like that. And so when people like that get a platform, in some ways they have a responsibility to support local artists and black coffee i have to say has been amazing about doing that you can tell that in in his visuals and stuff he's supporting you know local designers local artists um local cinematographers he's supporting people from south africa specifically and he gives a platform to south african um musicians as well he plays their music mostly i say i would say 90% of his set was african or south african music and he supports Af- african voices like the vocals are are from you know either they're in zulu or i recognize swahili actually in some of the vocals that he was using so i would say that that's something that we need to do for each other right we get excited when we get picked up on if we're from africa like cnn or you know i don't know netflix or amazon prime or something and we just yeah. start going into that world and we get agents here and agents tell us oh well you have to make yourself more more your stuff more digestible to the american audience and they start whitewashing our stuff right and before long we're making the same stuff that americans are making mm-hmm. we have to be careful not to get lost in that we have to stay true to where we came from and remember to pull everybody with us i think that's important yeah and in future wise where we're going we're going to see a netflix africa in the future we're going to see youtube africa in the future we have to start creating our own channels for that we're going to see um probably you know we have nat geo africa national geographic africa already that's starting to happen now and that's good and bad because once you the minute you put netflix africa are people in new york going to be sitting here tuning into netflix africa not necessarily right so again you push the you push the content back onto the continent i think i don't think that that should happen necessarily and if there are people out there listening to this who are planning to do that don't make your partnership with netflix original you know put your content out there and there's space for it i mean i watch you can watch a netflix show in norwegian i i do i like to watch the norwegian netflix shows because i have family in norway and i'm trying to pick up the language and stuff like that or i'll watch something in spanish and i'll read the subtitles i watched a series in french which one was oh call my agent which was really great and it was yeah. all in french you know and i love that show and so you don't have a barrier don't think anymore that you have a barrier to putting your stuff out there because a it's not good english or in english you know it there's there's nothing holding you back now the, the playing field is wide open and um if you're making something get it out there in the world don't be scared there's going to be eyeballs for it i mean you should see the crap my kids watch on youtube and these people are making stupid stupid amounts of money you know <laughs> if Crazy. those fools can do it Why not us? We really have something to say, something valid, something real, something with substance, right? 
Our kids need it. <laughs> My kids need it. Trust me. <laughs> I agree. Uh, that's really great advice. I envied Nigeria when they first started because I was back home when Nollywood started. We they would do everything very local. They spoke their language in there, but now it's more um, everything English. And then South Africa still keeps it that way. They speak their language, and we read the subtitles. I think that's beautiful. I, I Me too. Me you, too. you're staying authentic to who who we are, and uh, not changing it because we want to try to fit in, which is great. Yeah, I, love I love that too. I, Kenya definitely. I mean, it's we're, we're very good with English, you know, and yeah. we put a lot of our content out comes through in English. You know? Yes. No, I actually recently watched a lot of uh, Nairobi. Was I think it was a series that I was watching about a girl that got married. Uh, right now, I can't even remember the title, but she got married very young and she just couldn't deal with the, the arranged marriage. Wow. I, yeah, this on Netflix and it was really, really good. There's great actors in Africa. Like I always knew this, that there's so much talent back home and it's just a matter of, I guess, highlighting each other, giving us, giving each other the spotlight. Once you make it, bring others in like you said it's actually really amazing pull each other up as exactly. we go absolutely that's what it's about that's what it comes down to and you know the world is it's going to sit up and take notice everyone's saying oh we have such such a good representation in the media now of black voices and you know it's not it's not just because there's one black voice here and there it's not enough it's nowhere near representative of the population on this planet. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. It's, it's out of the ratio is completely out of whack. We need more and there's space for more. There absolutely is. And there's an audience out here that also wants more. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. What are you working on aside from the, the running show? What else are you working on that we can support you? I want to get a TV series picked up basically right but I don't I would love to produce a series in Africa and the idea is that you represent Africa in a way that blows everybody's perceptions of it mm. so for example in Uganda there's these little events and things that happen in Africa that the world doesn't know about that would blow their minds so for example in U Uganda it's quite silly but it's also really brilliant there's something called the goat races and every year people get together in Uganda to race goats. But it's done like the Royal Ascot, the British horse races. And people show up in the hats, in the fa famous hats and, you know, no. the big the, the outfits. And there's a champagne tent and all this kind of stuff. And they go and they bet on these goats and race them. And it's basically subverting colonial culture. And it's doing an FU to the British, you know. So there are these things that Africa does that happens in Africa that are hilarious and brilliant and just ingenious in some ways. And I think the world doesn't think about Africa that way, you know, and it doesn't look at Africa in terms of like, it's creative, it's beautiful, it's smart, you know, and um, Africa's also got solutions for us for many things. I would like, you know, to also talk about Africa in terms of like how the rest of the world relies on it. Like what would happen if the continent went away? Which systems on the planet would fail globally because Africa's gone away and disappeared, right? A lot. I mean, what about all the resources the rest of the planet relies on? Look at the cobalt that we're getting from the Congo, right? Mm -hmm. Take the cobalt away. What happens? 
all those electric cars are gone. And then we lose, we also have a cobalt that we're using, not cobalt, this lithium we're using in our phones for the chips and things like that in our computers. What happens there to the digital world if those things, if those resources disappear from Africa, right? How, what's the impact of the, on the planet? Because people don't think of Africa as supporting the rest of the planet. They think of, okay, we're throwing aid there and we're sending troops there and we're like, <laughs> you know, helping yeah. them all the time. But like, why? Why are you not, you're not, you're still not doing enough, you know? So I think that there's space for a show like that represents Africa from her heart, her true heart. That's something I love that. Like. I love that. I look forward to it and I know it's going to happen. You have a lot of determination. You've, Thank you're you. a New Yorker. Come on. You're a New <laughs> yeah. Yorker. We make things happen. That's what it is. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the blood. We have, do we have a here. word for African New Yorkers? Like I, I know we got them from like uh, New Yorkans. So they have like the Puerto Rican. Yes. New Do we have an African New Yorker word? We need one, right? We need one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need one. I think anybody listening, if you have one, send me a DM. Send, yeah, send uh, it to please us. a DM as well. I'm not going to say one because it's going to sound terrible, but <laughs> I'm sure there's better creative minds out there that have something for us. <laughs> oh, most definitely. Most definitely. At this point in your life, have you found your concrete pastures? I would say. I'm still following them. Yes, I'm here, but there's there's still a hunger to do more and want to be more. And I think some of that comes from having being a mom and taking a step back from my career, mm. um, prioritizing, you know, raising my family. And now, as you know, they're getting older, so I'm I'm going to be able to like jump into that a little more. I put things on the back burner. So just by by virtue of like. You know, being a woman and having a family, I think things got slowed down a little bit. So I'm still wanting to go out there and make my mark and do things. In terms of have I found myself and have I grown? Yes, I've definitely, I've grown here. You know, I've, I've found myself in many ways. I've found what drives me, what makes me happy, um, what keeps me healthy. That's something that's really important, you know? And I've found balance in my life, which is really important too. Yeah. I what about that. you? Have you found your concrete pastures? <laughs> I have. I have. So today when I sit down with you, my concrete pastures is this right here. The show, the podcast, being able to inspire, give insight to others, bring brilliant guests like yourself to be able to inspire the world. It gives me so much joy. It gives me so much fulfillment. I've been able to find myself. I went through so much headache, a painful heartbreak. So that gave me an opportunity to reconnect with myself. Because a lot of the times we lose ourselves when you are with the partner. Yeah. Not to their fault. It's just how it happens. But I had to connect with, with Nancy. I had to connect with myself. And it's beautiful that I've actually been able to find my concrete passions in that way. I'm happy with my kids. And this amazing responsibility, it scares me, but every day gives me butterflies to be able to do it because it's a huge responsibility. I don't represent myself. I represent so many people. 
And so, you're doing a wonderful job of it. You're very、um, good at getting people to, you know, bear their soul. You're like an Oprah. <laughs> and that's, oh, that's such a huge compliment. Started out, I didn't、so、think、much. I was going to tell you everything that I told you, but it just it just <laughs> flowed, you know. So you you definitely are a muse in that sense. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate that. That's a huge compliment. Yeah, thank you yeah. too, Nancy. Thank you for being here. It's definitely an honor to have you. Thank you for all the work you're doing to, for all of us in the diaspora and for representing us this way. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today, and it's it's been an honor for me as well. Honestly, very grateful. You are very welcome. That's it for this episode. Thank you again for lending us your ears. It's truly an honor to save each and every dreamer. You can continue to support us by liking, sharing, and following us on our social media pages. The links are all in the show notes. We have so many exciting projects and ventures in store for you. Until next time, keep dreaming. Concrete pastures.